Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. Our scripture passage this morning is again in the book of Isaiah. As we continue working through this uh, prophet, we are going to look at chapter 9 this morning. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And as we've gone through Isaiah, you'll have noticed that there's a bit of a, maybe a back and forth. Sometimes we open the passage and it's a very good news type passage. There's lots of mercy and grace right on the surface. There are other passages that don't seem to have that mercy and grace right on the surface. There's darkness, there's judgment. And we can maybe feel maybe sort of spun around. We look at it one way and we look at it another way. Uh, I hope this morning that as we look at Isaiah 9, you'll see how this, this darkness, this judgment in Isaiah, and the light and grace really fit, fit together. Um, this is a familiar passage maybe for you if you've been around the church. If you haven't, then maybe there will be some parts of this passage you've never heard before. But I hope that all of us together as we come to this passage would do what Romans 12 asks us to and have our minds renewed. Our minds renewed. What do I mean by that? I hope that as we come to this, we will see things more clearly than we have before. That our minds and our hearts would see the, the wonderful picture of life as it's described in Isaiah 9 as something that is not just nice on the pages of the Bible, but a, a living reality. That we would be renewed in the hope, renewed in our imaginations of what the world is and will be. It's our hope this morning as we turn to God's Word. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We'll look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 together. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to these words. Would you guide us? Would you show us the wonder and the beauty of light and darkness, of you through Jesus coming, shattering darkness, shattering bondage, pointing to true and lasting peace? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I had the uh, opportunity this week, earlier, earlier this week, to go on a kindergarten field trip to the zoo. Uh, it was everything that you probably imagine would happen on a kindergarten field trip to the zoo. Uh, lots of kids, lots of chaos, and lots of delight as we went to the, the San Antonio Zoo. If you've been to the San Antonio Zoo, you know that right in the middle of the zoo is the thing that the kids really want to do. Sure, there are lions and there are tigers that were kind of sleeping and not that exciting, but there was a carousel 
right? There's a carousel in the middle. And, you know, they have it in a good place because you have to walk past it about eight times. And every time the kids kind of look over their shoulder and eventually they say, hey, can we go on that? And so our group went on the, the carousel ride. And you, you know if you've stood in line for a carousel ride that you listen to the same song again and again about three times, get on it, listen to it one more time, and then you get off. And that's really the worst part of a carousel ride, isn't it? Getting off. Because where are you? Literally right back where you started, and now you're a few dollars poorer. And you know, even the kids are like, was it really that awesome? Was it really that amazing? Uh, I bring that up because... As we get to the book of Isaiah, sometimes I think that's how we encounter it. Maybe each week as we come to this, you sort of hop back on the merry-go-round and you you go around and you sort of see, okay, today we're looking at the darkness and there's a little bit of light there, but we'll turn around. And then at the end, you kind of get dropped off and you just sort of go back into your week. I think this passage this morning is helpful in countering that. Because what it does is, even though it does sort of move through the darkness and through the light, the judgment and the grace, it does it in a way that connects to what you and I experience. It's not just talking about some people in these places called Zebulon and Naphtali. It's talking about you and I and the actual darkness that you and I encounter. Places of anguish, places of frustration, places of oppression, places of violence, places where things aren't light in our life, where there is darkness, maybe even deep darkness that we are, are walking in. Maybe we are experiencing some of the gloom that this passage talks about. And you'll notice that as you read through it, it seems like the darkness is past, but as we get into it, we'll see that there are parts of this darkness that you and I still encounter. We still encounter some of the darkness that is mentioned here. So how do we begin to understand this? How does God, in His grace, move us out of this darkness? So we're not simply taking another turn on the carousel ride and stepping into the darkness again. Well, what's the context here? It begins with people walking in darkness, but what happens just before that? This darkness is largely the Assyrians coming. The Assyrians that, if you remember a few weeks ago, we saw that Ahaz has sort of brokered a deal with. He's got a problem. He's got some nations that are attacking him, and he says, actually, I'm going to get some some bigger help, and he gets the Assyrians to come. In chapter 8, we'll call those Assyrians a river. A river not just of Ahaz's sort of planning, but of God's judgment on his people, of their spiritual darkness. At the last part of chapter 8, we saw God's people who are not turning to the testimony, not turning to the teaching of his word. They've rejected what is true. And so there is a spiritual darkness that pervades everything. Even as there is physical darkness, it's the spiritual darkness that is at the, the core here. God's people are turning their faces upward turning their faces downward, and they they can't really seem to find any hope as they were thrust into thick darkness. It's the context that we see here, a darkness that is pervasive, it is deep. It's sort of a, if you've ever driven in sort of dense fog, that's sort of the picture here. And if you notice these people, they're walking in it, and it also says later that they, they dwell in it. It's not that they just went down a dark alley for a few minutes and saw some darkness. They're dwelling there. They've set up home in the darkness. It's gloom. It's anguish. And what is the cause of this darkness? Well, ultimately, it's, it's sin. There's a part of it that their kings have been bad kings and haven't led them properly, but ultimately, it's the people's sin that has resulted in this, this darkness. It's sin manifesting itself in all the ways that sin does. It makes us long for something different. 
Makes us long for what Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Everything in this passage primes us to say we need somebody to shine some light into the darkness. We see some notes of the darkness later in the text too, verse 4 and 5. In verse 4, it notes that there is a yoke of his burden, staff, and a staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, all of these things that are bearing down on God's people. All the frustrations of work with some references back to the Exodus when God's people were in slavery. All of that will be broken. But he notes it as a, as a reality, this frustration with work, this oppression of injustice. And also verse 5 notes violence. There is still war in this context. He uses some graphic language there of battle armaments, of boots, and of garments that have been tra- trailed in the blood of a battlefield. That's all the backdrop here that we see, this darkness. And it is where God's people are, walking in this darkness. Now, we have to ask ourselves, even as you see the language that says they walked in darkness, that there's a past sense to what they're experiencing, how different is this description of darkness from your life? You can all probably this morning list some places where things aren't the way they should be. Not the way they're supposed to be. Whether it's your sin or someone else's sin, you know that there is present darkness in this this world. And that informs how we read this passage to see that there is light shining, and yet there is some darkness that you and I encounter. We can see ourselves in this text. It invites us, in a sense, before we get to the light, to acknowledge the darkness. Sometimes in the church, we're pressured to sort of hide our gloom, um, We kind of have to hide our gloom sort of away somewhere, and we can't really let it out. We have to come to church and be joyful because this passage says we are to increase in joy, and our gloom sort of is pushed aside. This passage doesn't do that. It acknowledges full on the fullness of gloom and darkness that you and I know well. And sometimes we've even gone numb to the darkness that we see in the world. Maybe you've turned on the news and you see all the stories and you say, yep, people are still sinning. You sort of turn off the news and you just leave it at that. And that, that, that's fair, but we sometimes miss this little part of, of lament where we say, people are still sinning. Isn't that sad? I'm still sinning. Isn't that sad? We need to acknowledge that to see clearly the light. We can't sort of gloss over the darkness. We need to see that it is, it is there and it is... Uh, difficult and painful. And yet this passage doesn't linger there, does it? It quickly gets to the light. Look at verse 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. Now, you don't have to be a great Old Test- or New Testament scholar to know that this passage is talking about Jesus. It gets to it in verse 6, but we need to start talking about Jesus right now to understand this passage. What is coming is Jesus. Jesus is the one who steps into this present darkness of these people and brings real light. It's Jesus, in his fullness, in his majesty, who brings eternal light and life to bear. Now, how do we understand the words here, the tenses, if you will? We don't need to spend long on this, but we need to understand what Isaiah is doing. Because what does he say? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And if we look up at verse 1, he says this, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali, to understand this, they're kind of in the north of Israel. They're going to be the first ones to have the Assyrians come in and take them. They're going to sort of feel the brunt of the invasion first. And he also says, though that in the latter time they have been made glorious. 
Now, what Isaiah is doing is he's seen a vision. He's seen a vision of what is to come, and he has seen it so clearly and so vividly that when he comes back and relays it to God's people, he speaks as if all of it has already happened. Prophets often do this. They see the future, and they record it as if it's already happened. They're so sure of what they know will happen. That's what Isaiah is doing here. Some of the discipline that these people are going to encounter, the invasion, is still forthcoming, and yet he speaks as if it has happened because he is so sure that God will do what he has promised. It's a beautiful way of recording a prophecy, even if it takes us a minute to get our minds around it. And we see the fulfillment of this in Jesus. In Matthew 4, as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, right after he's tempted, where does he go? He goes to Galilee. He goes, as Matthew 4 records it, to Zebulun and Naphtali. It's a beautiful picture of grace. The people who first encountered the darkness of the Assyrian assault, that place the first place that Jesus comes and brings the light of the gospel to bear. That's not insignificant. That's not just a coincidental detail. It's God doing what he does in his time, in his way. And in that passage, Matthew 4, the very words described here of light and darkness are used there with a call to understand the fullness of the gospel, of Christ coming in and bringing light. It is all of grace. It is a trajectory of grace moving out of the gloom. Now, it's easy to maybe read this passage and you say, man, this is, this is a great Christmas passage. Why didn't we cover this at, at Christmas time? Well, uh, thanks to the Bernie Postal Service, I got a Christmas card yesterday. I went to the mailbox and I got a Christmas card. Now, it wasn't from somebody else, it was from me uh, and my family, someone we had sent to somebody, and uh, three months later, it had the little note put on it, uh, not deliverable or undeliverable as addressed. So why do I bring that up? Because there's a beautiful part of this passage dealing with this not in December, but in March. Because this is not a Christmas passage. This is a biblical story passage. This is the big story. This is getting a Christmas card in March and saying, the gospel, the incarnation of our Savior, is still true. This passage isn't sort of undeliverable as addressed. It is for us today. To see what God's people have seen by, by drips and drips and bigger pictures here and there, that Jesus comes and brings light into darkness. That all of that changes everything. That this isn't just for these people who, in these distant places of Zebulun and Naphtali, get some nice news. It's for you and I today to see what God has done again and to ask us this question Where, where are you looking for light? Where are you looking for light? We named some of the places that there is darkness in our life, but I know there are more. And we're in this side. I know there are places that only you know that you've experienced darkness. And where do we look for light to fill those places? There are a lot of things we do. Maybe we say our next vacation will finally give me the, the peace I've been looking for. Maybe the next book will solve my relational problems, my business problems, my spiritual problems. Maybe the next home renovation will finally get my house organized and I'll be able to carry on in the way I need to go. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's something your child will do. Maybe it's getting the next A on your test. Maybe it's performing well in the next game. We could go on, but we're looking for something to pierce the darkness. For a moment to say that there is light, that there is peace, that there is something that I can cling to that will get me through. What does Isaiah 9 tell us? It says that Jesus has come. 
Jesus has broken in. Jesus has brought peace in a way that connects not just to some future reality, but to now as our sins are dealt with on the cross. That there is lasting real peace that intersects right now. And it's with that in mind that we are sinners in need of God's grace. We have received that. And that part of the peace that we'll talk about in a moment in this passage actually connects to today. And it allows us to read without cynicism these words of rejoicing in verse 3. The people who have walked in darkness, they've seen light. And what happens in verse 3? You, this is God, have multiplied the nation. It's no longer just a little remnant in Israel trying to hold things together. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. There's this rejoicing as a harvest. They are glad with the division of spoils. Think of it. These are the the pinnacles of joy in this society, bringing in the full harvest. That's a time of joy, a time of seeing we have enough for the year ahead or the field of, of spoil. The enemies have been vanquished. We're safe. Look at this pile of provisions that we can use to sustain our life. That is the joy that is multiplied and increased because Jesus has come. It's a beautiful picture, and and the real reason for the joy comes in these next three verses, four, five, and six. You'll notice each of them start with four. These are the reasons for our joy. For you have, four, the first one, the first four says, for the yoke of his burden and his staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. The oppression that these people have experienced and will experience through Assyria will be broken just as they were delivered from the exodus. All their frustrations with their work, all of the unfairness and injustice that is in the world, all of that gets dealt with. Jesus breaks in as on the day of Midian. And what happened in the day of Midian? It was an unexpected victory. If you think back, this is the story of Gideon, where Gideon starts with a large army and it gets whittled down to 300. And they go and win this massive victory against the Midianites that is unexpected. And it's that same unexpected note that we see that a child is the one that brings this deliverance. A child. We also see that the battle is done away with. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood is is burned in the fire. What is this talking about? It's a picture of all the arsenal of a nation. Everything that has been used to protect it, to secure it, to have it have what it needs, all of that is no longer necessary. All the stuff that has been used, all the language there, it's, it's really boots that have booted into battle, boots that have literally been in combat, that are dirty. Garments that have, the, the language of rolled there is really trailed, that have been sort of trailed in the muck of a battlefield. All of that is piled up and said, we don't need it anymore. And so what are we going to do with it? We're going to burn it. It's similar to what we see in Isaiah 2, where we get a picture of this new reality, where what happens there? They they beat their swords into plowshares, where all the nations in Isaiah 2 sort of go towards God's, God's people and say that this is where righteousness and justice live. All the nations come in. It's that same echo that we see in Isaiah 9, where all of this is done away with. Now, who who accomplished this? Did God's people do this? No, it's, it's God who did this. God is the causative element in each of these things. He is the one who has broken the yoke. He is the one who has defeated their enemies. Think of it this way. Um, I know, hands up, you don't have to put your hand up. Uh, if you've ever run onto a football field after a victory. Um, I know the SEC is trying to make this illegal and they're, they're cutting in on everybody's fun. Um, but 
if you've done this, think about it. What did you do to accomplish that victory? So you're there with 70,000, 80,000 fans. They win. You flood the, the field, and everybody says something to the extent of, we did it. And, and I know there's probably some Aggies in this room, and I know you have this 12th man philosophy, but you didn't do it. <laughs> they did it. You sat in the stands and ate nachos. That's the picture that we see in this passage. We did nothing. God did everything. And yet, we get to go on the field and legitimately celebrate it. We are on this field of battle, burning all the things that were used in conquest because we don't need them anymore. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the beautiful picture of what God has caused a victory. We are passive in this, and so we get to rejoice in the light, to actually rejoice that Jesus has come in and brought a real tangible peace. Now, it's not a final and full peace. That's still to come in the increase of his government that has no end. But there is peace now, a real lasting peace because our sins have been dealt with. Why? Because of this child. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? And isn't that unexpected? We know this verse. We've maybe memorized it, maybe you've heard it before, whether you're familiar with the, the Bible or not, but this is radical, that a child is the one who is going to do this. The government, now it's not talking about him sort of in, inhabiting the presidency or something like that, the, the, the rulership, the authority, the responsibility is on this child, and that would crush any normal child. But what happens? We get his name, and it is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's a sermon in each of those, those words. But what is the picture there? The, the picture of wonderful is almost of, of uh, a miracle. It's astounding. It's almost its own name in and of itself. It's so wonderful and majestic, and he's a counselor. He brings wisdom. What God's people have been needing the wisdom that Solomon didn't have, the wisdom that David didn't have, true wisdom. And then they call him this, mighty God. The same words that will be used of God in chapter 10 of Isaiah are ascribed here to this child. He is the mighty God. It's not just an ordinary child, he is God himself. He is the everlasting father. Now this isn't somehow sort of mixing up the Trinity with the son being the father. No, he's everlasting father in the sense that he embodies all the characteristics of a true father who cares for his people, who loves them, who guides them. And he's also the prince of peace. Now, prince isn't sort of a lesser role. Literally, it's more a sense of the ruler of shalom. The ruler of shalom, the one who will come and finally bring the true peace that God's people have been living for. There's almost a, a progression and a trajectory that the peace is the ultimate thing that is brought by this new king. Because verse 7 reminds us of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That is the purpose for which he comes, to restore peace. Now, you and I, when we use the term peace, we have a, a vision of that that is something like getting away from everybody for a week and just being quiet. That's peaceful. It's not the, the biblical view of peace here, but that longing even that we have for that tranquility is reflected in the biblical language of peace. Peace here is that biblical word shalom. It's a true peace. It's a, a reign of healing of all the ravages of sin. It's a reflection that this prince of peace, the one who embodies peace itself, will bring flourishing to all God's people. 
to all of his creation. He will bring this, this peace. I'm going to read a brief quote from a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga. He says this about Shalom. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than the peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. Shalom, in other words, is the way that things are supposed to be. The way that things are supposed to be. That is what this passage is about. It's about restoring things to the way that they should be. The way that God has made them in and through his son. And remember, Isaiah uses this language as it has already happened because he has no doubt that it will. This is not some, I hope this happens. This is a sure thing as Jesus shows up. And it causes us to ask the question of where are we looking for our peace? Where are we looking for our peace? Not just our peace of mind, but our, our very flourishing. Where are we looking for something that will make, it, make our lives meaningful and a reflection of all that God has asked them to be? There's an invitation to, to real peace here in what God has offered to us. Because many of us have looked for peace in a lot of places that we know won't survive, we know won't sort of suffice, but we look there anyways. In fact, a lot of, if you know anything about addiction, a lot of our addictions stem from the reality that we are looking for peace. We're looking for flourishing. We're looking for something to make sense and to numb the pain and the darkness of sin that we experience. And so we look for something. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's medication. These are all things that, that are, are, are common, sadly, in our culture to say, that's going to help. It's going to backfill my need for peace. But it's not. It's the Prince of Peace, and it's his increase and his growth. That's where peace will be found. That's where peace is for us to run towards. It's a beautiful image surrounding this passage. Back in chapter 8, it says this, that there are God's people and they have no dawn. They have no dawn. Just preceding this darkness, there is no dawn, there is no sunrise, there's, there's no hope for them. If we look into the New Testament, the prophet Zechariah, just before Jesus is born, gives a wonderful prophecy of what is to come. Heavens in Luke, chapter 1, and verse 78. Speaking of Jesus, the prophet says this, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. He's talking about Jesus. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way peace. These people who had no dawn now have a dawn. And so for you and I, we get to live after dawn. Not all of this has been fully fulfilled. Some of this awaits the new heavens and the new earth. But you and I today live after dawn. We live in verse 7 where it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. All that had been longed for in David, that David would be the true king. Someone from his line is found here establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, Jesus comes in and declares that he has paid for the sin that caused all this darkness. He has come to bring true peace. Think of Jesus' miracles. Now, Jesus could have done anything, right? He's God. His miracles could have been more showy, let's say. He could have taken mountains and he could have done really, turned them into something. He could have done weird designs in the sky. He could have done anything more flashy miracles. 
What did his miracles do? They restored shalom. They restored peace. Think of people with atrophied legs that hadn't been used in years. People with shriveled hands. He restored them to wholeness. Hungry people he fed. Those who had lost loved ones he restored through resurrection. And as he did those things, it wasn't just about making the physical world right, but it was pointing to the fact that the spiritual reality of sin needed to be dealt with. And he never separated this physical and the spiritual, but he in himself, through his life and through his death and resurrection, declared that shalom was restored. And so for you and I, we look to that, and we know that that reality connects even to us now. Because all of us are sinners in need of God's grace. That's truly what we're longing for. All of those things that sort of say, what, what, what can I fill in? What can I do instead? It, it's Jesus that you need. It's Jesus that you need to come to again and again and to know that as you go into your week this week, that there is a true peace that has been given to you. Remember, peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you have faith in Jesus, if you know that you're a sinner who has been saved by his grace, there is real peace. Not that we have to wait for but that is, is now and is a reflection of the fullness that is to come. And we know this in part because as verse 7 ends, it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not that God just got zealous one day and decided to do something. The language of zealousness there reflects not just a moment, but a pattern of God's character, of always being faithful. This is fulfillment of the promises he's made to David and others throughout history. This is nothing new. It is God being God giving us peace and restoring all things as they should be. This passage also invites us, as we live in that peace, to begin to, to reimagine our world, if you want to phrase it this way. I came across a, uh, an artist recently. It's an Estonian artist named Matty Carmen. Uh, and if you've seen his work, you'll, you'll see where this is going. His medium of choice is World War II uh, sea mines. So these, maybe you've seen them, they're, they're large, they have sort of points coming off of them. And there were a lot of these that weren't used in World War II and were in a warehouse. And they were defused, deactivated, and what, is, what does he do with them? Well, he turns them into furniture. And if you look at his pictures, they're, they're kind of striking. He turned them into bathtubs. He turned one into a baby carriage. Which there's something very unnerving, something unnatural about seeing a device used for destruction with a child to be placed inside of it. But that's the biblical narrative. That's the biblical narrative of our weapons of war, the things that are necessary for a time. That's not what they're for. The swords that people used were ultimately to be used for plowing the new Eden. That's the hope we have. That when we look at all the destruction, all the sadness, all the darkness in this world, that there is a better story that is told here. An increase of government and of peace. There will be no end. Yes, for the future, but even for now, that we can pursue the kingdom of peace, that we can enjoy the peace of God. Because God expels the gloom and the darkness of sin, and Jesus brings peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, there is much here that is full of hope and true, and yet I know that at times it's difficult to connect it into the reality of our lives. Lord, would you, by the power of your Spirit, do some of that work of taking this hope and, and helping it penetrate the darkness of our lives even this week, teaching us and showing us that we have real peace now that we can hold on to. 
Lord, give us the strength and faith of Isaiah to, to recount what is future here as if it had already happened. Because you are a God who is faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.